All right, uh, first off, I want to say a big thank you to everybody else up at Christmas for kids. I got some pictures for you. Um, we uh, took uh, 66 kids out for, for Christmas and their families. And so if you uh, set the room up, you donated, you made cookies, you took kids shopping, you cleaned up, anything, we just wanted to give you a really big thank you and all of that. And the kids thank you too. And uh, this right here, this is Jethro. I took him out shopping. Jethro is a handful. Don't know why they gave Jethro to me. Anything that's summed up in the name Jethro, it's all right there. It's all right there. So, so thank you uh, for that, by the way. Uh, again, uh, the, the youth uh, Christmas party that uh, Karen was talking about a minute ago, uh, Jeremiah has tickets for it in the back if your kids want to go because they're fancy tickets for the fancy fancy party, whatever. All right, uh, if you are, and this is just a little bit of church business, if you are a member of Element, you've actually gone through the gospel class and uh, you've gone through a little interview and you actually you know, signed the covenant form, you are a member. Next week after this service, so about 1230, we're going to do a really short meeting with you guys. Uh, we were closing escrow on that property this week, and so if you remember, we just wanted to talk to you about that, the process, and where we're at. Uh, we're also, in January, going to have an all-church business meeting where everybody's invited to that because, you know, we're going to need everybody's help to do it. So, you know, but we just wanted to meet with the members who have gone through the class, and, uh, you know, really, this has been their home for a long time, and so we wanted to meet with you guys and just run some things by you and all that kind of stuff. So that's next week after uh, this service, so about 1230. Uh, any chairs? Like two chairs? In the room, hands, right there, bam, yay, all right, all right, so I have one more thing for you too, uh, every time I talk about, I'm going to quit talking about cats, okay, because every time I do, all I get is hate mail from you people, and I don't know if you do it because you think it's funny, oh, ho, ho, ho. I like cats, how can we do this, you seen that, so anyway, you ever, oh man, I shouldn't even, I'm, okay, anyway, I almost would have offended everybody in the room if I just said that, okay, so anyway, uh, so last week I made the dumb joke about the catch. I even stole that joke from somebody and I still got hate mail from some of you guys. So that somebody sends us an email this week and they're, they're like, you know, you ought to be very care- careful because people are going to write negative, re- negative reviews about you on Google. And I'm like, Ooh. <laughs> I know it starts with G, but it doesn't end in OD. Okay. But so, so I actually Googled myself, which isn't a dirty thing. Okay. So. So I Google myself, right? And it comes up. And seriously, uh, like the first three pictures of people, like, isn't even me. So there you go. Go egg their house. Bam. Done. Although eventually it does give you my address, which I'm a little bit worried about. How does Google know? Google. All right. So welcome to Element. If you are new, this is how it goes around here. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You can click on Live in that. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get the sermon notes and the verses uh, that go along with this morning's message. And my name is Aaron. In case you are new and don't know me, you can just forget that name when you Google me. That's how it works. Why don't you stay on me reading God's Word? We'll get started. This is Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 and 26. 
It says, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live in humility. Uh, lives that reflect you and honor you in all things. So that you are raised and lifted up and that we are a humble people who love you. Amen. Have a seat. So, this is our series about Jesus. If you're new to Element, you might be thinking, great, a church that's going to talk about Jesus. And if you've been here for a long time, you're thinking, you always talk about Jesus. Exactly. Jesus is always the point. And so this series is about who Jesus is, uh, how he changed the world, how he continues to change us and the world around us. Better to focus on him as we come into the season of Christmas. And it's really kind of like Christmas sales. They start earlier and earlier and earlier. So we started this, sto- this series in October just to be in the swing of things. That's how it works. So today we want to help you understand humility in light of Jesus because one of the most amazing things that Jesus brings into our lives is this idea of humility. Today everyone is trying to compete for status, whether it's put down jokes of the car you drive or the money you make or the house you own or how well you do something or how many Christmas lights of how many color variations are on your house. We're all competing somewhere for something. Uh, John Ortberg says that the greatest way we can understand this is from one of the dumbest animals on the planet, and these are called chickens. Some of you own chickens, and you know how dumb they are, but you probably think your chickens are smarter than everybody else, so that puts you higher up on the status thing there. But, but chickens have a way that they organize their community and their society and their relationships. Anybody know what it's called? Pecking order. Exactly, a pecking order. So here's a picture of some chickens. I'm pretty sure the dude over there on your right is the... Oh, man, I almost said the head. I'm sure he's in charge of everything because it kind of kind of looks... Like it. Uh, so they're all somewhere on this pecking order. If, you, if you're a chicken, you're high up in the pecking order. That means you get more food. You get to scratch wherever you want to scratch. If you're low on the bottom, you're like, like Eric Morangi likes to say, you are a lonely chicken. A lonely chicken. You're afraid you can be attacked. You are hungry. You got low self-esteem. Because everything is about somewhere on the pecking order. And I, I think if you look as we walk through, you're going to realize the whole idea of a pecking order, it's really kind of ludicrous and dumb. But we all kind of live by it. Uh, You know, it actually raises a whole lot of issues for people who are trying to breed chickens because pecking order, they kill each other trying to establish this pecking order. It's a really dumb way to live. People have actually made products to try and stop this. You can go buy a thing at the farm supply called Peck No More, and it's like this really bitter thing you can put on all your chickens, but it doesn't work. They still keep pecking on each other. Uh, back at the turn, uh, back at the turn of the last century, they actually made these glasses for little chicken eyes, rose-colored glasses. Anybody hear about it, right? Okay, so they put them on the chicken eyes, so they'd stop. It didn't help. So about 35 years ago, another guy has a great idea, and he makes contact lenses for chickens. What? I know. Puts them in the little chicken eyes, and they can't see anything because they make them all blurry, and so they stop pecking each other. But chickens can't take care of their contact lenses. Who knew? All right. <laughs> And they all start to go blind. So all the chickens are now going blind. That doesn't work either. Just tells you a pecking order doesn't work. So today, what we want to look at is how Jesus, you know, stopped this idea of a pecking order and changed how the world really views things. Uh, Because Jesus introduces the idea of humility. Because really, there's only two ways that you and I are going to be able to do life. And the first way is the way of self-sufficiency. In the ancient world, they would also call this the way of the hero or the way of the humble. 
Okay, we're the way of the humble. Uh, in the world where Jesus was born, the, the way of the hero was highly admired. Now, in our day, we say we venerate heroes. We don't really venerate heroes. What we do is we lift up perpetrators and not heroes. But Jesus' society was a little bit different because a hero meant something just a tiny bit different than that. A hero was somebody who overcame obstacles, who they achieved their potential of excellence. And so, therefore, they received status and honor and recognition. It's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You ever go to school and you read about that? You know, the highest thing is self-actualization. You become God, you achieve your own potential, therefore you have become in that culture the hero. It's the, all the idea that enti- your entire life is competition. It is a contest. That's the meaning of life. This is why the Olympics for the Greeks were so important to them because it wasn't just sports. The Olympics, it was all about this competition and trying to get status. It is a religious ceremony for them because it's about what makes life life. You strive against obstacles for excellence and status and honor. Now, in Greek, the word for that striving and excellence was the word agon. You mean what word we get from that? Agony, exactly. It'd be growing up here, watch the wide world of sports and it was on. The thrill of victory and the... Agony of defeat. It's my favorite part of the whole show because that little skier just spun out and went, Foo! I'm like, sweet, I'm done, I'm good, I watched the show, that's all I wanted to see. Because I liked it when they crashed. The agony of defeat, it was awesome. Okay, so anyway, this whole society where Jesus is in is all about pecking order. People are high, other people are lower. Cicero once wrote, rank must be preserved. So your whole identity is where you stood on that pecking order. Your goal is to always get higher and higher. So we're going to run through some expressions of this in Jesus' day. Then we'll come back and talk about how Jesus kind of changed this. Uh, The first way is clothes. The clothes you wore, all dependent upon your status. If you were a free person and not a slave, you could wear what was called a freed man's cap. It showed, I'm not a slave. Slaves at the bottom, you're a little higher than that. Right above that, if you were a citizen of the Roman Empire, because you could be free and not be a citizen. Citizen is is another special category. When you were a boy and you turned between 14 and 16, you could start wearing what was called the toga virilis, or the toga of manhood. So you get the next higher thing above that. Above that, you have this thing called an equestrian. An equestrian is like a second-level aristocrat. And so you not only could you now wear the toga and the little hat if you wanted to, I know you want to wear the toga because you all watched Animal House and you think it was the best movie in the world or something. You know. But then you could also start to put gold rings on your fingers. And so you got a toga and, and your gold rings to mark your status. Here are some pictures of some gold rings that you could wear in the Roman Empire. Uh, rings were so associated with the status of this equestrian that it was sometimes called the Order of the Rings. Sounds epic. Like we should make a movie or something, right? <laughs> In, in James chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, James gives a warning about showing favoritism. He says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, he says you're not supposed to show him favoritism. Everybody would know what he was talking about. They're, they've got the ring, they've got the question ring, and they've got the toga virilis. And so, by Roman law and custom, you were supposed to show those people favor. But James says, if you show them favor over a poor man in shabby clothes, that's evil. So from the very beginning, the church is on a collision course with Rome. The church is turning everything on its head. And believe it or not, clothes were actually a part of that. If if you were a senator in the Roman Empire, another higher uh, aristocrat, then what you could do is, is you could start wearing on your toga a purple stripe. I know, a purple stripe. How sweet is that, right? I mean, wouldn't it be cool to walk around the purple stripe? You could be like Miss America every day. Well, bam, purple stripe. Isn't it crazy that people's clothes were an expression of status? Isn't that a crazy way to live? Anyone watch the Emmys of the Golden Globes? What's the question? Who are you wearing? That's the question. And the Romans thought they were so smart. Unbelievable. We're so much smarter than they were. We would never do that. 
Okay? Occupations were ordered around your rank. The most honorable occupation was you owned vast tracts of land. And you would have slaves that came in and worked that land because the goal of the elites would never be... Ne- I never do manual labor. I know we our culture now, like 20-something dudes, I will never do manual labor. That's kind of like the, where they come at it from. But, you know, it's, they're not elite. They're just dumb, okay? Uh, it, the, the, in, in this culture, it was, not, it was not good to be, you know, one of these slaves that worked tracts of land. You were supposed to just sit back and do nothing at all. These elites would never work work with their hands, and they look down on anybody who did. Uh, almost kind of like today, the higher you get in academia in our world, the more they look down on people who do manual labor. Like, I'd really like to see one of them, you know, fix their own toilet. I'd like to see that happen. Cicero once wrote, Vulgar are the means of livelihood of all hired workmen who we pay for mere manual labor. Imagine that. You know, so your occupation about your status. Your legal condition also reflected your status. In Rome, there was one law for people who were more honorable, had higher status, and one law for people who were more humble and had less status. Kind of like today, it still happens. Congress makes one law for you, called like Obamacare, and they don't have to follow it. So it's, it's like, really? Yeah, see, it's not good to be one of the humble, because they just kind of run over you. You know, a Roman citizen also could never be crucified. You can be punished in other ways, but never crucified. This is why the Apostle Paul was beheaded, and he was not crucified. Crucifixion was always reserved for non-citizens, always reserved for slaves. As a a matter of fact, sometimes it was actually referred to for a really long time as the slave's punishment because it was so associated with slavery. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, who is a Roman citizen, is writing to a church in Rome, which is really small at the time. And he starts his letter to the church at Rome by describing himself. And he doesn't say Paul, a citizen of the Roman Empire, but which he could have done. He could have, he could have said Paul, a wearer of the toga, but he doesn't. In Romans 1.1, this is what Paul says. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, you may not think that's a really big deal, but the word there for servant is the word doulos. That word equals slave. That's what that word means. That identity is cultural suicide for Paul. Nobody talks that way. In in the uh, book of 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And see, this is why it's, it's, a stu- it's, a, it's folly to the Gentiles, because what? You follow someone who was crucified? What? Why would you do that? To the Jews, it's also a stumbling block, because Deuteronomy 21.23 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Jews thought someone who was crucified was cursed by God. This is why he writes this, stumbling block to Jews and Gentiles. That's why he says it. And to Greeks and Romans, it's all about honor. It's all about status. It's about this pecking order. And a slave is as low as you can go. And yet Christians were a group of people who said, we admire and we venerate. We essentially serve a crucified slave because that was Jesus' status when he was crucified. We serve the slave. And not only that, we are slaves to a slave. I mean, this is turning the world on its head. These things that they're saying. And, and so you have to understand, as it even moves farther, you have things like seating at, at public events. If you went to a public event and you sat, like, say something in this room, the people who had more worth and status would sit closer to the front. Today we determine that by how much your ticket costs. But, you know, in, in that day, the closer you sat to the front, because apparently you like getting spit on by me, you know, the closer you sat to the front, the more honor that you, you would have. And so people would just walk in a room and they would look and they would see your status by where you sat in a room at any public event. If you held a private party at your house, all guests would be seated in order of their status. Uh, sometimes if you were kind of a lower status person, you would invite a bunch of people lower than you so you would move up your own table so you could get higher up in your own party. If you were a guest of inferior, inferior rank, you would actually be served inferior food to reinforce your inferiority so you would know how inferior you actually were at a party. So, you'd be given, like, cheaper wine. I know some of you guys like light beer, so you just fit right in. 
I like finger foods and stuff, so I'd fit right in too. It'd be great. Uh, if you were at one of these parties and you were of lower status, you were not allowed to speak until everybody of higher status got to speak. And then you could never interrupt somebody of higher status. They could always interrupt you, but you could never interrupt them. Even, say, giving of gifts would also reinforce status. I mean, sometimes, you know, rich people would build public baths or parks or buildings. They put their names on them. It was called monumentalism. People still do it today. But they would also sometimes give away possessions or gifts to somebody else. But there's always strings attached. If someone gave you a gift in this culture, you were expected to reciprocate. Whatever it was, you had to give something back. And so sometimes somebody who was really wealthy, who didn't like somebody who was less wealthy than they were, would throw a big party. And they would give a gift to this person who was less wealthy than they, an extravagant gift. They know this guy can never reciprocate. And this guy would have to go bankrupt trying to reciprocate. It's a way they would hurt people who were less than them on the status ladder. Plutarch, Roman writer, said, Most people think that to be deprived of a chance to display their wealth is to be deprived of wealth itself. So they would look for expensive things to buy and clothes to wear with expensive labels, chariots that were really expensive, the Lamborghini chariot, you know, the Bugatti chariot, the Bentley chariot. I got the B. I got the Bentley. Just let everybody know, hey, I can afford it. Isn't that a dumb way to live in a culture? Can you imagine people live like that? Oh, my goodness. How weird is that? Titles reinforce status. For a really long time, Romans would give each other and their friends just titles for things. I know sometimes you give your buddies nicknames that are just really dumb, like knucklehead or knuckledragger or whatever, you know, something dumb, right? But they would give, like, huge honorary titles. When Caesar Augustus became uh, emperor, those titles really didn't mean anything at all by that time. Uh, but, but they're all about receiving glory and honor, so they just keep trying to do it. Uh, my friend Luke, a couple weeks ago, went down and shot photos at the American Music Awards. And it, we're like, ah, that's so awesome. But really what happened when he got there his job was to shoot people who worked at the guggenheim as they walked around the american music awards so it wasn't as cool as it sounded but i said on a resume you put i shot photos at the american music awards because it sounds so it's like a title it's like, we're just doing what the romans did i mean we're you know when in rome i guess you guess you're doing it there's a publicly uh, viewed document called the deeds of divine augustus about caesar emperor uh, caesar augustus written by augustus himself and this is what he says three times again he's writing this three times i triumphed adoration 21 times i was named emperor the senate voted yet more triumphs for me which i declined because of victories won by me the senate voted thanks to the immortal gods 55 times in my triumphs nine kings or children of kings were led before my chariot i have been counseled 13 times i was highest ranking senator for 40 years I held the office of Pontific Maximus. All citizens with one accord prayed unceasingly in every holy place for my well-being. And that wasn't considered embarrassing at all. That was considered normal. Uh, Plutarch actually wrote a book, if you could translate it into English, is essentially how to praise yourself inoffensively. We, we, we would all rush out and buy that book. Oh, this is what I need to do. I'll, I'll just say these things. You know? Now, I'm not saying that all the ways of the hero were bad. I mean, they had some good qualities. Courage, excellence, persistence, overcoming obstacles, self-discipline, self-mastery. But nobody held humility as a value. It was not an admired quality. Uh, e- even today, we still do this. Uh, Bill Bennett writes a book called The Bur- Book of Virtues. You know what virtue is not in the Book of Virtues? Humility. Humility. What is desirable is greatness. Life in the ancient world is all about greatness. Robin Fox is an historian. He writes this. Among pagan authors, humility had almost never been a term of commendation. It belonged with ignoble and abject characters, modest little men with much to be modest about. Great men should cherish no humble thoughts about their nature. But then you have Jesus. You have Jesus. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. 
You have Jesus who is a carpenter in a little country called Israel, and he's going to change all this, and our world changes because of it. Let me just show you, as we walk through this, one of the ways that he does this. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 25. This is about people who rule and people underneath them. And Jesus says this, 2025, where we started this morning. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, or you could say flaunt it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Okay, so you just take that one line. Now, if you work at a company and somebody's underneath you and somebody came to you and said, You flaunt your authority over me, you would feel bad. You'd be like, Do I do that? Oh, my God, that's, that's a horrible thing because it, it sounds so conceited, right? right? In this culture, they'd be like, That's right. That's what I do. Sweet. I flaunt it over you because I'm a Roman. That's what I'm supposed to do. No Roman would be offended by those words by Jesus. But we are offended because of how Jesus changed the world. They would say, of course that says. That's how you pursue greatness. That's how you pursue excellence. The whole point of the pecking order is to get higher up so I can peck on somebody else. That's what I do. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you, not with you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first must, first among you must be your what? slave must be your slave that's an odd way to try and get higher on the pecking order verse 28 even as the son of man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many jesus says i'm going to make a new community i'm going to make a new way the way you live in the kingdom of god starts with humility that's where it is And so you understand that humility doesn't try to grab worth through all of your achievements and all the things that you do. You realize it receives its worth by grace bestowed upon us by a good and glorious God. Humility is not running around trying to get as its ultimate value its own self-fulfillment. It is all about self-giving love. Humility is not about its own glory. It's about giving glory to a glorious God. Humility does not try and impose its will on everybody else. It surrenders their will to a loving and good God. Now, we kind of got out of Genesis last July. Okay, We came to the end of Genesis, got out of the book of Genesis, but most of Genesis focuses on this guy named Abraham. Now, Abraham is venerated in Christianity and Judaism, but he would never have been venerated in a place like Rome or Greece. In Israel, he becomes the model for a new way because he lived a life in covenant, obedience, and love to a good God of humbleness and servanthood and submission. Open your Bibles to John chapter 13. You know, when we come to Christmas, you have this idea of what's called the incarnation. God becomes flesh in the person of Jesus. That's Christmas. God becomes human. That's a picture of humility. But also, you look at the end of Jesus' life and how he went out. The last night, almost the final moments of his life, he is so concerned his followers get, get this that he plays this out. He acts this out. John 13, starting in verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So what he's saying to them is, now you're going to understand what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. You are going to see humility. You will know the nature of my Father's heart and my heart. You will see what true excellence really looks like. So stay in John 13 because we're going to come back there. But let's talk about some of these areas. So let's talk about clothes. Okay? When Jesus was born, the shepherds are spoken to by angels in Luke 2.12. And they say, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. You know where you get swaddling clothes? Not in Macy's. Not at Saks Fifth Avenue. That's not where you get swaddling clothes. The rags a peasant would put their baby in. What is the sign that the God of the universe took on human flesh? You'll find a baby wrapped in peasant's clothes. 
Jesus comes into the world in swaddling clothes. End of his life, he goes out of this world in the uniform of a slave. He takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around himself. That's what a slave did. How about his occupation? Jesus works most of his life with his hands, menial labor, okay, as a carpenter. No hero in Greek or Roman literature did this, but Jesus did this. His last act is washing feet. Washing feet is very important in this culture. It's an important act of hospitality. In some places, it's religious ritual, but it's a very important part of hygiene. It was a job, though, that only slaves would do. It was always done by slaves. In fact, in Israel, it was considered so demeaning that a Jewish slave could not be forced to wash somebody else's feet. And so you never read in literature of a higher status person washing the feet of a lower status person. You never read of a rabbi washing his disciples' feet, except for this rabbi, who says he is the Messiah, who says he's the Son of God, who says he came from God and he's going back to the Father of whom the Father says in Matthew 3, 17, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, of whom Thomas will say in John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. How about legal status? So the last night before Jesus is uh, crucified, he, it enters the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. So he's going to be arrested. He's going to be a convict. He'll be executed as a criminal, which is essentially slave status. That's his status. Judas is present at the Last Supper. Jesus knows what Judas has done. He knows what Judas is going to do. You ever have somebody betray you? Talking about you behind your back, stabbing the back. Anybody? Okay. How do you feel about them? Jesus gets down and he washes Judas' feet. That's what Jesus does. What kind of heart does Jesus have for Judas, that he can love Judas in that way? How about seating? Okay, you, you have this expression of status and honor. Jesus is at this table, the Last Supper. All the guests are sitting around this table, and he is the one who gets up from this table like a servant would do. In Luke chapter 22, verse 27, he says, For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? So Jesus shows them what he is teaching. The way the world works is pecking order. How many Facebook friends do you have? How many Twitter followers do you have? How many of your friends come to you and and ask you for advice so you can sit back and they can come to you and you are above them? How, How does that work in your life? The great ones sit, the humble ones come, and they serve. We still have echoes of this in our society. If you go to a banquet and it's, and it's a really you know, highfalutin kind of banquet, there's usually a guest of honor at this banquet. Where does the guest of honor sit? At the head table. That's where, that's where they sit. So who is greater, the one who sits at the head table or the one who serves? Well, it's not the busboy giving you your food. Jesus says, is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? How about giving of a gift? Because it's Christmas after all and got gifts going around, so gifts are all about status. Jesus goes to Peter, and he offers to wash his feet. That's a gift. So back in John 13, verse 8, Peter says, Jesus, there's no way that you're going to wash my feet. I am not going to be the occasion for your humiliation. It's just not going to happen. But Jesus says at the end of verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So in other words, that is a picture of our spiritual condition. We need to be cleaned up. I'll tell you, acknowledging that we have sin is humiliating. It says we can't do this on our own. We have messed everything up. We need you to save us. We need the gift Jesus will give in his ultimate humiliation, his death on a cross. You and I think we're so bright and so intelligent that we have so many things all together. We've got a problem called sin, and it kills, kills us every single day. Jesus says, you have got to receive this gift. 
Are we a humble people who bow before him and humbly receive that gift? We get on our knees and thank God and, and say, God, my, my, I need you. My pride, it is killing me. My own self-sufficiency, it is killing me. I mean, I've, I've tried so hard in my life just to be great on my own. But I want to confess to you my sin because I will never be anything on my own. I need the gift that Jesus brings. Jesus says there's no other way to be part of his family. It is simply a gift that he gives. I mean, everybody in the ancient world wants something. Does Jesus want anything from you when he gives you the gift of himself? Yes, he does. He wants you. He wants all of you. I mean, that's, that's not a statement where he, he wants your money and your thing. What he wants is you. He wants to remake you and redeem you and reshape you and make you into who he calls you to be. It's, he wants you to be his child. He wants to walk with you and give you purpose and hope. It is amazing what Jesus does and what he gives. See, it, he doesn't want Peter to wash his feet. He says in John 13, verse 12, Do you understand what I have done to you? He wants to make us into a community of people who wash feet. And then even title, he goes after that still in John 13, verse 12. At the end, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are, and you are right, for so I am. Those are titles of respect in that day. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. He said, if you have titles, that is just about opportunities to find better ways to serve and to help people around you. And Jesus starts a community with no pecking order. I mean, sure, there are leaders, you know, in his movement. But it doesn't mean that these people are better than anybody else. And if you are someone and you feel like, man, I'm, I'm always at the bottom, don't become a victim or a martyr. You become humble. You simply live how Christ told you. If you feel like you're higher up on a, on a pecking order, you don't look at others around you as less than you. You understand that in Jesus, everybody's life matters. Everybody's. See, the early church understood this. In Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul writes later to the church at Philippi, he says in Philippians 2.5-8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's again the word for slave. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. On a cross? Really? Why would somebody do that? He humbles himself? Nobody in this culture humbled themselves. There's an ancient Roman writer's name in Celsus. Sounds like a lot of writers today. And he talks about the major weaknesses of Christianity. And he says that all they can do is draw to themselves his words, stupid, ignorant, weak people, slaves, women, and children. That's all that Christianity can draw to itself. And yet Jesus takes these people and he forms a community known as a church and it changes the entire world. Because I'll tell you, people who actually live in the kingdom of God understand something all the Greek thinkers didn't. And that is the kingdom of God is here. It is among us. Jesus has come to save us and redeem us and restore us. And the kingdom of God is now. And so for you and I, we've got to ask, is there any pride in us that keeps us from humbling ourselves before God? Is there anything that Jesus has actually called you to do and you don't want to do it because you think it's beneath you? Are you into titles and occupations and clothes and status? Maybe somebody has hurt you and you've held a grudge in your heart and this person has never come to apologize. Maybe it's time for you to go to them and say, hey, we need to talk about this. Maybe you know you've hurt somebody else and you've got to go to that person and say, you know what, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? We live lives of humility because I think it would be really amazing 
if there was some type of epidemic of humility that started to take place at Element, between husbands and wives, between friends and enemies, between frenemies, you know, between all that stuff. I think Element could use it. I think our city could use it. I think your workplaces could use it. I think your homes could use it. I think your neighborhoods could use it. I think your friendships could use it. A people who really live in humility before a great God who has saved us. Because what would happen is we would step away from our uh, self-preoccupation and trying to do everything ourselves for our own selves. The life that Jesus calls us to inspires us because the gospel is only lived by a humble people who are surrendered to his will and his glory and his way. This is one of the reasons we talk about communion every week. Because communion is the place where we remember that Jesus died a humiliating death for his people to raise us to new life. This is why you break that cracker like his body was broken for us. It's why you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Reminds of his blood that was shed for you and I. Because that was a very humble place and a very humble act. And I'll tell you, we as Jesus' people should be a very humble people as well. I mean, we do not get to have more pride than our God who died for us, who sought people out, who redeemed us. And so we live lives bowed to him, worshiping him in all things, a humble people. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you guys to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer for anything, and maybe, maybe you have lived a life that is solely about your own self-sufficiency. You know, it's like, it's like I don't care about, I just care about myself. I, I will tell you from, from the outset, Jesus still died for you. Jesus still loves you. He still humbled himself in the ways that he did to come and and redeem you. He loves you. And so we, as a people, respond in kind to what Jesus has done, and so we humble ourselves before him. Uh, There's offering boxes in the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, so it's part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done, understanding his kindness and his grace to you and I. And then there's some food and stuff in the back. We, we give you guys food because we want you guys to connect to each other. Because I'll tell you, living a life of humbleness is not easy. Sometimes it takes a friend of yours to walk up and say, you are being a knucklehead and you need to knock it off. And that's, that's a great benefit when you have friends that you can trust enough to come and do that and say that to you. Because our lives are not about us. They are not about following our own agenda. They are about lifting up Christ and serving him in all things so that he is raised up and all men know that our God has saved his people because he is good. And so I encourage you this week to live a life of humbleness and grace. Don't put yourself up too high. Don't also put yourself too low. Just remember exactly where God has placed you, his child, his kingdom, someone he deeply loves, and someone he died to redeem. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we as a people would be those who understand uh, the humbleness that you came in. And that we would begin to live lives who reflect that more deeply. That we wouldn't be caught up in our own status and our own honor and all the things that we think we want and need. But we'd be caught up in what you call us to. Because you are the hope of the world. We are not. (laughs) Except in the sense that you redeem us and strengthen us to go out into the world as your hands and feet. But that's also a very humble position to be in. 
And so today, have us understand more rightly that humbleness, more appropriately that grace has been so freely given to us. And that we as a people remember the importance of the gospel. That our God sought us when we were so far off doing our own things, so full of our own self-sufficiency and pride. And in that place where we were, you died for us. You rose from the dead to restore us to new life. And we, as a people, now should be those who live in humble adoration of you, being servants to the world around us. You are the hope of the world and have our lives lift you up in all that we do. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us, for being so good to your people. Amen.